This is episode number 233 with Director of Data Science at Red Bull, Josh Monk. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Sense podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show. And today we've got a very interesting guest from a very exciting company, Josh Monk, Director of Data Science at Red Bull. I literally just got off the phone with Josh and we had an amazing conversation. This podcast is going to be full of valuable insights. For instance, we covered off a couple of case studies of how Red Bull uses data science. So if you're a fan of Red Bull, then this is going to be very cool for you to learn. Also, we talked about topics such as data science leadership and how that is such an important area for businesses to consider when they're starting out into the world of data science and for data managers to think about how data science leadership is different to leadership in other areas of the business. We talked about asking good data questions, uh, the importance of data science and the decision-making process in any kind of business and of course, we went through Josh's background, how he went from consulting into industry and what he learned along the way. So all in all, a very exciting podcast is coming up. Can't wait for you to dive straight into it. And without further ado, I bring to you Josh Monk, Director of Data Science at Red Bull. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. we have got a very exciting guest. Uh, Josh Monk, Director of Data Science at Red Bull. Josh, how are you going today? I'm really good. Thank you, Carol. Excited to be on the show. Thanks for inviting That's me. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so pumped. Um, we're going to have a, an adrenaline-filled podcast. <laughs> um, so, it was really cool to meet in person. The first time we met was uh, a couple of months ago in October at Data Science Go. In fact, Data Science Go X. Uh, for those of our listeners who are not aware of what this ProX is, it's uh, a uh, conference that we have for executives, data leaders, um, and business owners. And yeah, what what was your experience like at Data Science GoX? Like, tell us how you felt at, uh, at the event, and you know if if you got any value out of it. Yeah, I thought it was an amazing event. It was uh, it was really the first time I'd been to an event like that, which was really centered around the leadership aspects of data science. Um, so it was great to have kind of a smaller, more focused session that was really dedicated to those folks that are leading and managing data science teams. Um, so it was hugely valuable, um, made a lot of great um, connection, connections and contacts, uh, folks that I'm still uh, in touch with now and have been speaking to, uh, and lots of interesting conversations and debates about, you know, what is still a pretty new discipline, uh, leadership within the data science world. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Really appreciate the feedback. And Indeed, like one of the parts that I liked the most was having those conversations about data leadership. I remember we were at dinner and you mentioned that right now there is simply just is no platform for leaders to understand how to better set up data science teams, how to manage data science talent, how to retain data science talent and how to 
you know, set up these projects and and move forward. And uh, yeah, that's that's a quite a important question in the world right now. Like I think it's it's popping up quite recently, given how data science has been developing. It hasn't been an issue that before. But do you think this is like an indication of how data science is slowly maturing? What would you say? Yeah, I think that's probably correct. As uh, as um as data science as a discipline has become more mature and more and more companies are kind of creating and setting up data science teams and departments, um, they're realizing that actually you need, you know, good, talented leaders to to run those departments. And so, you know, in the early days of data science, I think a lot of companies previously just hired one or two data scientists, gave them the keys to the data warehouse and said, hey, go and play and come back with something interesting or valuable. And now as, you know, companies are trying to actually embed data science into the way that they work and the way that they make decisions, I think they're figuring out that actually, you know, keeping those teams happy and engaged and tied to, you know, the objectives of the company is is not just a, a case of putting them in a room with with a database. You actually need people who can create the vision and the strategy and the um, and the career paths to those people too. And mm-hmm. that is what data science leadership is, and it's it's not easy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in your personal journey, so you've. Uh... You've moved from consulting in IBM to Deloitte, and now you're director of data science in, at Red Bull. How have you gone about getting this knowledge of data science leadership? Like, obviously, there's a lot of trial and error, but how how would you recommend somebody in a similar position to you to develop this these leadership skills specifically in data science and lead their teams correctly? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's hard, and I'll, and I'll be the first person to say that it's been a learning experience for me too. I think. Um, like myself, like a lot of people come from kind of a more technical data background. You know, I, I studied physics and I was in data consulting, as you said, at IBM and, and then at Deloitte. And so my, um, my kind of early part of my career, if you like, was as a data scientist. And so that kind of training and that kind of experience doesn't necessarily prepare you well for being a leader in data science. So I think a lot of people who are now kind of leaders and managers of data science teams kind of ended up there by chance, like they got promoted into that role, mm. um, not necessarily because they were like naturally great leaders and, and, and natural managers of people and talent. So I think the first thing to realize is like everyone finds it difficult in that in, in that space. And it is a new set of skills, right? It's a new ladder to, to learn how to climb. Mm-hmm. Um, and you shouldn't um, feel bad if you find it difficult or if you find it um, uh, to be something that you need to take time to learn. Mm-hmm. The, the big the big change that I made from consulting to, to joining Red Bull um, was was one that came with you know the need to you know m- go from managing projects and, and 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 groups of people to deliver a single goal to to managing my own team or creating and, and setting up and then managing my own team. Um, and one of the things that I found to be really really helpful in in just how I did that effectively and how I did that well was to find coaches and mentors within my company and outside of my company. So there were no other data science mentors and coaches. Um, so what I had to find was people who I felt and you know could see were good leaders at Red Bull and outside of Red Bull, uh, and then speak to them about leadership challenges and problems and, and questions that I had. And even just getting that outside perspective, I've found to be really, really helpful. Very interesting. How would you say da- leadership in data science differs to leadership in other areas of you know, the business, for instance, in, in Red Bull, like what are the, of course, there's, there's a lot of things you can copy and take away, but what are the main differences that people need to look out for? Yeah, I think, um, 
I think there's a few things that kind of make data science a little bit unique. Um, and one thing that I, th that I think makes data science hard, harder to manage than maybe some other aspects is just the fact that it's, it can be very exploratory and open-ended. Mm -hmm. So um, Angela Bassa, who is the director of data science at iRobot, actually has a, a great um, article um, on the Harvard Business Review, and she's, she's done a few podcasts as well talking about this. The, the fact is, you're not you're not managing a process that has a really clearly defined start, middle, and end, um, mm -hmm. where you know the objective is always super clear, and as long as you kind of point in the right direction, you, you know you're going to get there eventually. You're managing something which is you know usually very exploratory, um, which has many different paths and routes that it can it can go down, and and on occasion might actually not return something of value. And so, you within data science, you need to figure out a way to keep the people who are doing that work motivated and pointed in the right direction even if there might not be a right direction, mm -hmm. very obvious. Yeah. And, also, and also provide air cover for those people in the wider business, you know, if things don't pan out as, as people would have liked or hoped or, or expected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So you need to prepare your team for that as well, like build your team appropriately and prepare them like morally, mentally for, for these differences and these uncertainties that are facing them. Yeah, definitely. I think you need to help. You need to help the the team understand um, that not every data science project is going to have you know a really clear, nice um, deployed product or output. Uh, you need to help the business understand that as well. Um, and then you need to throughout the course and the duration of those product projects, making sure you're making the best decisions you can do, um, and helping the team make the best decisions they can do um, to kind of keep pointed towards something that's going to be valuable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, gotcha. And um... Well, before we dive further deeper into your work at Red Bull, I'd like our listeners to get to know you a bit better. And I'm mm -hmm. uh, very curious about your background because it's very similar to mine, actually. You have a Bachelor of Physics. I also studied physics in my bachelor's mm -hmm. and um, you worked at Deloitte. And like, I also went through that at Deloitte. So it's going to be fun, right. fun going through this. Give us a bit, a bit of background, like uh, maybe just for my, my benefit, what kind of physics did you study? Um, so my bachelor's of physics was, was a really broad degree. I ended up, um, actually kind of specializing more in kind of nuclear and plasma physics. So mm. the thing that I that kind of wrote my, um, uh, bachelor's thesis on was, uh, on the confinement mechanisms of, uh, plasma, superheated plasma in, um, uh, in nuclear fusion reactors. Oh, if you ask me to, to, if you ask me to remember anything more about it at this point, I think I would forget it. <laughs> um, yeah. But that is, that is that is what I studied. Yeah, gotcha. And the same board, same board as you. So I remember yeah. the the name of my thesis, or probably not even the name, but yeah, wouldn't be, <laughs> wouldn't be able to dive deep into that stuff. But what I like about physics is it structures your brain in a certain way that then you can like once you've learned something like nuclear physics it's much easier to learn anything else. Like you kind of have this confidence that you can master anything that you come across. Right. I think, I mean, physics for me, I never, I don't think I quite realized it at the time, but it's one of these things that um, everything you're doing is about the application of math to, to, um, to some kind of applied problem of the real world. And, and so that is so true of the job I ended up doing. I don't know if that was intentional, accidental, mm. or just kind of um, uh, good luck. But yeah, I really think my my education prepared well for that because it's really the idea of applying applying those techniques to get to some answer or uncover some insight about the real world um true in physics and true in data science gotcha and so how did you go from physics to being a consultant at ibm <laughs> right well you know that's a funny story in itself mm. i um i i basically was um planning to 
continue my education and I was going to continue to do a master's um, and then uh, maybe even beyond. A PhD. And I was a PhD, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I was dating a girl at the time who had an expensive taste in handbags and I remember thinking, you know, I've got to get a job if I'm going to be able to uh, wow. <laughs> um, afford those handbags. But it was very late in the year and so I was kind of out of... Um, out of options for a lot of the um, the most uh, popular uh, graduate programs at, at some of the big employers in the UK. Mm-hmm. IBM was one that um, had year-round application. And so um, I went down to the IBM headquarters in uh, Portsmouth in the UK, met the, the graduate recruitment team there, really, really excited by... Um, by the role and the, the kind of foundation program that they that they had um, and applied and was lucky to get the job. So it was a little bit serendipity that they were still accepting applications that late in the year. Yeah. Um, and ended up, uh, like I said, yeah, doing a, um, a, a three and a half years at IBM in a team called business analytics and optimization. So that was kind of data science before it's called data science. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all consulting, working with a lot of different companies, um, really understanding how you know, how data is used at companies. Um, and then that's when I first started to look at, you know, data visualization and modeling as a way to solve problems in, in business as opposed to in, uh, in academia. Interesting. Do you, do you remember your very first project? Um, yeah, my, my very, very first project actually was, um, was a, a big clothing store retailer in the UK and they were doing um, a project called Single View of Customers. They were trying to pull together all of their different data sources mm-hmm. um, about their um, customers mm-hmm. from you know, credit card uh, data, online e-commerce, and customer service um, call centers uh, to kind of stitch together, together this profile, which they, they were then going to use for, for marketing purposes. And uh, I remember my first day, <laughs> I remember my first day on, uh, on the project. I had just come out of my you know, graduate training at IBM, re- really felt good about myself and I was told to go and write this um, um, data test plan or something, completely bombed, had no idea what I was doing, ended up, um, sat down with the project manager and he said, I don't think I was supposed to see this yet, was I? <laughs> I, remember, I remember feeling pretty, pretty bad about my uh, choice of consulting career, but I think everyone feels like that at their first day of work. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, but that was a. I mean, that in itself was a great project. It was a great learning experience, and I had some fantastic mentors and managers that really kind of, kind of um, helped shape those early parts of my career, and ultimately um, where I am now. Yeah, and and speaking of data science leadership, it's it's so like especially in those early phases, so up to the manager or director to encourage, reassure the the new graduate or analyst that you know like it's okay to fail you know it's okay to learn because you can be so discouraging at the start i think that is something that is key and i mean that is key in any kind of leadership role but especially in data science where you do have this like iterative exploratory um kind of work environment where things don't always go right uh, it's really important that the, that the more experienced folks let the less experienced folks know that you know, sometimes things just don't work out. And, and that's just the price of doing something which is ultimately kind of, you know, an innovation role that is exploratory in nature. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. So you did uh, three years at uh, IBM and then you moved to uh, Deloitte. What, uh, what, yeah. what made you make the move? Um, you know, I think uh, there was um, this kind of a time you get to after about three years mm. in your first job. Where I think you start to think about, you know, what could you do now, and is 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 um, 
Is there something else that uh, could be interesting? I really loved consulting and I, I loved the variety of different problems and um, uh, projects that I got to work on in consulting. Uh, I wanted to work for um, somewhere where there was going to be kind of less focus um, on the the software and the tools specifically mm-hmm. um, that IBM had and a bit more focus on, on the business problem and the, and the commercial side. Um, and Deloitte uh, offered that. So I joined a, a great team, again, with a great um, group of people and fantastic managers uh, at Deloitte in London um, in their consumer business team. So that was kind of like retail and, and consumer products. And uh, yeah, that was that was after about three years and I was at Deloitte for, I think you and I had this conversation about the same time, about mm. two years, two and a bit years yeah. um, was my was my stint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same for me. It was a, it was a two years and um, yeah, it's kind of like they, they, these consulting firms, they usually have this uh, un, unspoken uh, rule two, two years up or out. And um, not to say that I got out because I couldn't go up. <laughs> but you just kind of like that two years or two or three years mark is is when you kind of like sit down, reassess, like, do you want to continue or is it time to move on? to Then you do another two or three years and again, you reassess. Uh, I guess that's how it works. And uh, yeah, for me, I realized, OK, you know, I've learned a lot, had a lot of variety. I had a lot of things. Now I know what I want. Now I know where I want to go. From. And uh, how right. is it for you? Like uh, after two and a bit of years at Deloitte, um, why Red Bull? How did that happen? Well, yeah, I mean, it was slightly different for me that, um, you know, my last project at Deloitte was actually at Red Bull. So oh, you I got originally poached. came to Red Bull. You got poached I was by poached. Red Bull. <laughs> I was poached. Um, and, uh, you know, I was uh, uh, kind of in a situation where, uh, uh, as with consulting, folks who are at consulting companies will know, you're incentivized to go out and, you know, do a project and then move on to the, to the next big thing. And so I had um, done a couple of projects with Red Bull. Um, actually in Austria, which is where Rebel is globally headquartered. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, less, lesser known fact. Oh, wow. Um, Rebel's global headquarters are actually in Salzburg, mm. um, just uh, in, in Austria. And so I had done a, a couple of projects there, and I was really, really passionate about the company and what, what, we, were be- what we were building and um, wasn't really ready to, to, to leave. Um, you know, just felt so strongly about the, the, um, uh, the team there and, and, and what was being created. So decided um yeah after the offer came that it was kind of the, the right time to make a move was really really lucky that that move was uh to santa monica california which is also pretty hard to say no to <laughs> so back, backed up my flat in london um and, and moved out here fantastic wow and been being at red bull ever since and been at red bull ever since so yeah i'm nearly coming to three years now wonderful and um so what was the position that you moved to was it um like were you joining a data science team or were you starting a data science team? Describe the, the environment, the circumstances at the, at the time. Yeah, so I joined, I joined as the director of data science um, and I was the only person <laughs> in the data science department at that team. There was no, there was no existing team or department. Um, there was no real um, um, strategy about what data science you know, should be at Red Bull. Mm. So that was kind of my first job. It was to, you know, say what, what should data science be at Red Bull? What should we do? What kind of projects should we work on? Who should we hire and, 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 um, and what should we deliver? So yeah, it was an interesting, it was an interesting, um, few months, especially kind of going around, just, uh, introducing myself to people as, you know, the new director of this department that they've never heard of. <laughs> um, 
but that's you know that's that's what I always find exciting is you know having the the opportunity and and um, and the sponsorship to be able to create and set something new that is really really exciting really motivating and, and ultimately one of the reasons I, I came here was to be able to do that and I'm, and I'm lucky Rebel gave me that opportunity I love it I totally love their approach in like oh we don't have a data science department we're not going to start by hiring an analyst let's hire a director right away you know <laughs> let's go all in that's so that's so like Red Bull like you know from what from what we see with the adrenaline sports and stuff like very courageous, very straight to the point. We need a data science department. That's how Josh as a director of data science. Wow, that's so cool. And, and what is your team right, like right now to almost three years later? Yeah, so right now um, we're a team of four people. So I've got um, three data scientists that, that work with me, three really, really talented um, folks that, that you know I'm really excited to um, uh, have hired and, and are still here. <laughs> None of them left. Um, and so um, we are we are working uh, on projects at Rebel from the uh, what we would say the beverage side of our business. So so presumably everyone knows that we that we make and sell energy drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do projects with the sales team and the uh, and the distribution team on on the beverage side. And we also do projects with the media side of our business. So um, with uh, with Rebel TV and Rebel.com. Um, we also have those like lots of events and marketing that we run too. So we do projects on that side. So we are still a pretty small team, I think. Um, and uh, especially considered the, the, the variety and the scope of projects that we are, that we're working on. But, um, you know, never let anyone tell you that a small group of people, if they're committed, can't change the world is my yeah. motto. That's very, very wise words. Okay. And so um, very interesting. Uh, let's, let's move on a bit into the work that you guys do. So you mentioned you're in two sides of the business, the beverage side of things and mm-hmm. the media side of things. Could you give us like an overview? More, what I'm interested in is for our listeners, it would be very cool to hear, and there's plenty of fans. I'm sure there's plenty of fans of Red Bull listening to this. It would be really cool for them to hear kind of like an industry case study. What, like maybe if you can share a project that you recently did or the, the type of work that you do, the, the approaches that you have. Some, some, uh, a specific case study, if you will, to go into fast cool. Sure. Yeah. I, um, you know, as I said, I think one of the really interesting things is about Red Bull is it's kind of very broad and diverse business that we have. And so as a data person, um, the, you know, the ability to go and play in, in other people's backyards is really great at a company like that because it means there's a great variety of projects to do. Um, so maybe I'll give you two examples to kind of illustrate the scope of, of different kinds of things that we work on. So um, one project is kind of very core sales um, um, analytics. So as you probably know, Red Bull, um, we sell Red Bull at um, many different bars, clubs, restaurants uh, across the country. And so one natural question we might ask is, are there additional bars and clubs out there that you know are not selling Red Bull that maybe should be? And so to answer a question like that, um, it's actually a great machine learning question because we want to get to something really, really tactical, which is, you know, the list of prioritized places that we're not selling Red Bull that we, that, that we should be. Uh, and the inputs to that are going to be things like, you know, what type of bar and club is this place? Um, what are the demographics around um, that location? Um, maybe we can pull some data from external data sets like, um, like Google or um, like I said, demographic data is also helpful there. And we're trying to build a model that basically is predicting, you know, the volume opportunity based upon our current set of bars and clubs um, for bars, clubs, restaurants that we're not selling Red Bull at. 
Mm. So the output that the output there is is you know it's not really a dashboard. It's not particularly sexy. It's something that we can hand over straight to the sales team. Really, a list of um, locations that we think would be you know high priority places um, for them to go and see if they're interested in in selling our product. That's that's really cool. Uh, so you're using experience with your current data sets and you know like your bars that you have already and the geo demographics around them, the drive times, the um, I don't know, profiles of those bars and like anything else that you can find on those bars. And then you're looking at the bars that you're not servicing and finding like kind of like like for like matches or kind of like a, even a recommender type system where you're looking at your existing data and trying to learn from that to make predictions for the other bars out there that you have never ever dealt with. Exactly. That's right. And if you know anything about the US, you'll know it's a, it's a huge country and um, the number of bars and restaurants is is changing and there's lots of turnover right so there's mm. lots of new bars and restaurants opening all the time yeah. so what we want to do is make sure that we're you know you know rerunning this model fairly frequently so that new bars and restaurants are brought in and we can prioritize them for our sales guys as, as quickly as, as possible gotcha and uh, if you are able to share could you let us know a bit about the model what kind of uh, machine learning algorithm did you use for that yeah so th it's, it's actually an interesting project because one of the um one of the things that we wanted to do with this project is um, is give the team kind of an opportunity to to compete on on, on model selection. So mm. we actually ran, um, you know, for for this project, we actually ran a, like a mini internal Kaggle competition. Nice. So we didn't load on we didn't we didn't load on Kaggle and open it up to the public. A lot of the data we were using was was proprietary. Um, but we actually set up, um, you know, a little test holdout set, uh, and we said, okay, guys, you know, over the next two weeks. Um, we will uh, compete to see who can build the best model, the best supervised model to predict this, um, to, to, to predict volume for these uh, for these accounts. And so the model that ended up one as as that ended up winning as as quite often seems to happen at the moment was actually an XG boost model. Yeah. Um, and um, but really the the beauty is in the features, right? So so the winning model is actually the model that, that where you know the data scientists that built it had taken some time to create some new powerful features that were that were really predictive and helpful in um in, in, in getting to that. Um, optimum uh, very, very interesting I, I see that I've seen that uh, before as well where you use XGBoost it's, it sometimes can even outperform deep learning algorithms it's surprising um, maybe because like deep learning requires so much more data and so much more uh, training but I think XGBoost is still is still um, generally considered to be better for most structured supervised learning mm. problems than um, than deep learning. I think certainly for me, I would I would go, well, I would always go to like a uh, some kind of boosted or, or tree based model on a on a structured data set mm -hmm. before starting on something like deep learning. That's much easier to get up and running more quickly, and you're probably going to capture most of the value um, in that modeling problem with with something like that without having to go to a deep learning approach. Gotcha. And uh, and as you mentioned, feature engineering super important, right? Like the the way you select your um, uh, columns or parameters of this model, it's uh, like how do you create new ones? How do you combine existing ones? Do you look at you know just the the number of customers that go into the bar, or do you look at number of customers divided by the drive time distance, or the, the revenue that the bar is making multiplied by the average spending, or divided by the average spending of the customer? Like kind of those types of things. And what I wanted to ask you is, I find that. When you use XGBoost, or like recently I had an example, when you use XGBoost and then you do feature engineering, um, you end up with like, I don't know, maybe six or eight features which are very highly predictive. But 
I find that it's very sensitive. Like as soon as you remove one of those features or you add a new one in, results can go like uh, completely, you know, completely change. Do you have, did you have that experience? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely with XGBoost, that is that is that is one of the things you'd expect. You know, it's it's a tree-based model, so it's considering a lot of interactions between variables, and so making you know even small changes to to the input data you, you put in are going to have pretty big out, uh, outcomes in terms of the uh, the final predictions. Mm-hmm. I think um, a lot of people uh, attempted to think of that um, feature engineering step as kind of just like a data cleaning process, <laughs> yeah. where you just kind of line up your training data set. And you push it into your model, and then you know what you get out is is or how you improve that is then kind of further tuning hyperparameters. And mm-hmm. I think that's a shame when people do that because there's a lot of opportunity to be to be um, obtained by thinking cleverly and 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 more like a human mm-hmm. with your business knowledge about how to frame that uh, training data set. So, for example, one of the one of the features that ended up being pretty predictive here uh, in this model was actually looking at the for each bar club and restaurant looking at the volume of other bars and clubs and restaurants around it Mm. it requires a little bit of little bit of like geospatial um feature engineering right you have to kind of calculate those trade areas and you have to look at other places that are nearby and then calculate the average um average amount of volume that they're selling and so to do that to do that is not something that the model itself is going to automatically calculate for you um so you, you can actually think and be clever about the way you set that modeling pro- problem up and the data you feed into it, and you're going to get probably better performance of your model by doing that. Mm, gotcha. And I, I love that example because it speaks to the creativity that data science requires. There's, there's quite a, I hear quite a bit of a concern that data science is going to be automated, that you know, like companies like Data Robot are going to edge out the data scientists. And not to say that there's no room for... Uh, services like data robot and automated data science but still there is so much creativity involved like the um, unless you think about it in advance and think of it as you said as a business problem use your business knowledge and then uh, go out there and put some effort to derive those additional features like uh, the volume of the other bars around the automated algorithm for data science will never actually even know that there is such a possible feature it's not going to just go out there and understand how bars work and suggest that feature it's just going to use what you give it and unless you think about it creatively and come up with this feature, you know, you're going to miss out. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think, that, you know, the automated data science engines, be they things like um, Data Robot or just even AutoML, mm-hmm. um, they're definitely going to have a role in the toolkit of the data scientist. I, I really see that um, the outputs of some of those things, when you've got a very, very clearly structured and well-framed problem with, um, you know, a nice clean data set and it's, and you know, your output is all about predictive performance. I definitely see that those those tools are going to play a role. Um, do I think they're going to do away with the need for for a data scientist who can, you know, creatively think about a business problem and the strategy of the company and then translate that into the data, right, by creating sensible features that make sense? I don't think so. I think that uh, there will still be a need for that. Absolutely. Totally, totally. And, and then on the other end as well, you've got to have a, a data scientist who can who can communicate the result yeah right like that, that's yeah, last a big I, last, part for you guys as well yeah last i checked a uh, data robot wasn't that good at standing up in front of the board and <laughs> pre- presenting their results in front of uh, skeptical salespeople. yeah yeah all right cool so that was a wonderful example thank you so much and you mentioned you have two case studies what was the second one 
Yeah. So the the other example um, is kind of right on the other side of our business, and and, and is something that you um, will almost certainly be aware of this type of problem, um, which is recommendation models. Mm. So we have um, we have uh, Rebel TV, which is a you know fantastic um, a repository of content. You can watch it on your phone, on your um, laptop, uh, on your uh, Apple TV or, or other device, um, and we make a lot of great content, and we put it out there. Um, for people to watch and enjoy and consume, and it's and it's free. Mm, wow! So it's free. Yeah, it's, it's everybody it's listening. Free and, it's free. <laughs> it's free. <laughs> Download it now. Free. I was expecting that it's going to be like Netflix. How come I don't have no. it? No, I'm getting it right now. It's crazy. Yeah, everyone listening, do me a favor and go and sign up for Rebel TV. Get an account um, and let us know what you think. That's awesome. So one of the pro- one of the problems that we, uh, we 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 actually never implemented on on Rebel TV previously was recommendations, right? Mm-hmm. And so. That's a very, very well told story is, you know, how can you use algorithms to um, better present what kind of content you put uh, in front of someone? Uh, and specifically what the problem we were interested in solving was um, content to content recommendations. So how do we find content that is similar to other content um, so that when someone's looking at one piece um, uh, of maybe, you know, downhill mountain biking videos, what else should we show them to, to potentially watch next? That was previously a problem that was always solved by humans at Red Bull, mm. always done by kind of editor, editors manually creating lists. Wow. Um, and we we're able to show the power of, of, of kind of algorithms to help find additional um, similarities in our, in our content and, and put those recommendations uh, in Red Bull TV. Interesting. So tell us, how do you actually go through this content? Because I imagine it's like video content. Do you like use the metadata? Do you use some NLP to get the text out of the images or do you use some like computer vision? What, what, what's, uh, how do you get into what's in that video? Yeah, I, um, I don't think I can go too much into the, <laughs> the, okay. nitty, the, nitty, the nitty gritty of it, but I will say that you're on the right track. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Well, yeah, there's, as we move forward into the world, it becomes more and more advanced. And um, yeah, I heard like, like a, a couple of years ago, I actually heard that Google had plans to you know how like when you search for something, the you you are recommended pages on the web, but like videos mm-hmm. only if the title of the video has it. But like Google had plans to actually go into the spoken text inside the video and pull out the information from there and recommend it to you. So wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So one of one of one of the areas I think has been really really productive for deep learning and AI models has been how do you get data out of places that were previously not considered data, right? Mm-hmm. So. Well, that unstructured data or vi- like raw um, transcriptions or video content pictures were previously kind of taking up space on people's um, disk drives and cloud servers, mm-hmm. but not really able to be analyzed in a way that could actually be then used to drive a decision or an action. And so one of the things that Google for sure, many other companies and Red Bull 2 is finding is that actually starting to apply some of these um, text, image, audio, video analytics techniques um, on that data you're able to extract a huge amount of really, really actionable data from them mm-hmm. um, that can then be used to drive things like recommendation or search mm-hmm. um, products. So that's been an amazing transformation in the industry just in the last, call it, five to ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's proven really, really valuable for companies that are now getting stuff out of that um, previously unavailable data. Yeah, gotcha. And I actually read an article recently about recommend engines and wanted to get your thoughts on this. So I heard that there's two types of recommender engines and often they're combined. So one is where it looks, as you describe, it looks at the content and looks at similarities between the content to recommend to the user. So if 
somebody liked, um, I don't know, um, Stephen King movie, they might like uh, Stranger Things, you know, like the TV show, because they're both like kind of scary horror and stuff like that related. Um, so there's a relationship between the content, there's like a network between the content that the algorithm taps into. Whereas the other one is, it looks at similarities between the users. So if, for instance, I liked, um, I don't know, like a, a, a movie like Lion King about, you know, the cartoon, and then, but then I have somebody that maybe I don't, I don't know, but they're similar to me in terms of my, the geographics, the, the um, kind of like transactions that they perform on the website or, you know, any other data that's available on the person. And they have never even watched a cartoon. They've never watched like a um, Pixar movie or anything like that. But because of the similarities, they might be recommended the content that I have seen. So, uh, and th that pops up, up completely different recommendations. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you, I don't expect you to go into detail whether Red Bull uses either of those uh, or the second one. But uh, just, just what are your th uh, thoughts on um, the differences in the power of the two types of um, recommender systems? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 an it's a really interesting space, and there's loads of great research um, that's been done on this. One of the, you know, the, the way I typically see the split is you've got kind of like content to content, where I'm looking at which content is similar to other content. Mm -hmm. um, you've got um, kind of like user to item or co like user to content models, and those are going to be kind of like your, um, you know, more standard collaborative filtering type type models, where you're kind of saying like other people who. Um, watched or voted this, um, tended to like this other piece of content that you haven't seen yet. Mm -hmm. um, the trade-offs there are kind of interesting because, you know, those collaborative filtering models are great and kind of really unpick um, not just good recommendations, but also these really interesting vectors of, you know, users and tastes where you can kind of look at the results um, of the, um, the matrix factorization and kind of say, hey, these are the, these are the kind of um, types of users or types of contents that we have. Um, but after you do that matrix factorization. So, so those give that really nice understanding of the interaction between your users and your content, mm -hmm. but they're not very good if you get a brand new piece of content, right? Because, you know, no one's watched it, so how do you recommend it? Mm -hmm. So there you need something that's going to be content-based where you can actually say, hey, this content, for whatever reason, based on whatever characteristics, is similar to this other piece of content. Therefore, this is how we're going to place it. Mm -hmm. What I think is really interesting is now um, the application of deep learning techniques to recommendation where, um, you know, the, the really advanced approaches are actually combining kind of content based um, with behavioral based um, with kind of like personal features, personalized features and information about the users to produce really, really like granular recommendations um, uh, that, are, that are really high performing. So that is a, you know, really interesting area of research. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure that you can guess that the folks like YouTube are using uh, are using stuff that is state of the art in deep learning for recommendation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's I recently checked how many uh, research papers Google published this year in 2018 <laughs> on on this on like this stuff. Like it's 434 research papers on just AI, machine learning, computer vision. That's wild. That's like more than one per day, if you think about it. Like, <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. It's, like it's, it's like a printing press for research papers. It's crazy. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Okay, okay, that's, that's very cool. Fa fascinating um, topics. And, and uh, yeah, thank you very much for those case studies. I'm sure a lot of people get some great ideas, guidance out of there. I wanted to great. switch gears a little bit and talk about, so we, we mentioned um, data science leadership. I want to talk about mentoring. So at uh, 
when you were at Data Science Go X, uh, we had this exercise where uh, during one of the lunches, the lunch on Sunday, uh, I think it was, no, the lunch on Saturday, um, mm -hmm. the Data Science Go X attendees, where we had, I think, over a dozen of leaders and directors and business owners, would go to the Data Science Go conference, the, the main event with the 300 attendees, and you guys were placed into um, different tables to mentor the audience or mentor the um, attendees who were at your lunch table. How did you find that exercise? Because like, I've had so, such interesting feedback from many, from both sides. Tell us a bit about that. And, and in general, because like, I know, I've, like, I've read a bit about uh, um, mentoring and like, there, there's been some exercises where companies have sent their teams to Red Bull to get mentored. So like, I'm assuming you have some experience in that. What are your thoughts on mentoring in the space of data? I think it's like incredibly important and it's not just limited to data science. I think mentoring, you know, is one of the most or finding a good mentor is one of the most important things that you can do for your career. And I think that applies whether you're at the beginning of your career, um, halfway through or towards the end. The exercise at um, Data Science Go X was, was excellent. It was really good. I had some great conversations with some folks that were kind of pretty new um, to data science and were trying to figure out specific problems that they were working on at their companies or kind of more generally just how they how they get started and and, and what they were you know what they were supposed to do to, to, to find their first job mm -hmm. um so i thought it was great i i really enjoy that kind of exercise i think it's um it's important for us folks who are a little bit more experienced in the data science world to uh, make sure that we are out there and making ourselves available and giving giving back to, to the community and for those junior people that are that are just getting started mm -hmm. um so it's, and it's something I feel really passionately about. I think it can be incredibly valuable. You're ultimately helping kind of the next um, wave of talent come up. And one day those people might be applying for jobs at your company. And so you, you want to make sure that you really give back and, um, uh, and mentor where you can, because I think, I think it's a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and th that's the feedback I've heard all around that yeah, people who have some experience in data science are so passionate about giving back to the rest of the community and helping others grow. Like, I, I honestly don't really know why it's so... I haven't seen this in other fields. It's, it's very pronounced in data science and maybe it's due to the, like, the steep learning curve and like once you get up the, the learning curve, you're like, oh, wow, it's, it's actually, it all makes sense. Let me explain it to somebody. Like, yeah, I, you know, I listened, to, um, I listened to the podcast that you did with uh, Kristen Kerr and Kay Strachny um, um, you know, a little while ago and both yeah. of those guys just inspirational in terms of the amount of mentoring that, that, that they do and the amount of give back they do, the, the, the blog postings they write, the training courses they create, the books they're doing, um, so much like inspirational stuff in terms of give back. I'm not that good at that, <laughs> at that stuff, that, you know, the really public platform stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that it's important to, to, um, to, to, to give back. And so, you know, one of the things that, I, that I've done a couple of times that I've really enjoyed is go and judge at, um, at hackathons. There's one at UCLA called Data Fest. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty popular that I was a judge at um, early this year. Uh, and I think those kind of events are great as well because those are also people that are kind of new in their career. They get given a, a data set and, you know, 48 hours to go and, you know, find something interesting in it. Uh, and being there to kind of mentor and judge um, those kind of events are really, really um, good experience and maybe doesn't involve um, for the people like myself who aren't great at writing and public, yeah. um, doesn't involve the uh, scariness of putting yourself out on a platform. Gotcha. And what, what would you say is your most common advice that you give uh, to people who are starting out into the space of data science? 
That's a hard question. I think, you know, I think the one that I I find myself saying most frequently is um, you've got to go and find real world projects. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people who do data science boot camps uh, and, and online courses, those are great and those are a great start to your career as a data scientist. But for, you know, a hiring manager or a leader, you're pretty aware that most of the problems and the, the projects that you work on in those types of course um, are pretty, you know, artificial. They're structured. The data is usually set up pretty nicely. You've got a, a fairly concrete metric to train to. And so I think one piece of advice that I always find myself giving to junior folks is go out and find projects that, that you're passionate about. And being passionate is important because it means that you're going to see it through, but also that are real world projects, right, where, you know, you actually maybe need to go and be creative about how you obtain the data. You need to think carefully about the features. You haven't, you haven't got kind of like a, a cheat sheet on, on, on what features to create um, and where there are real trade offs between the different types of model you use. Um, that is one piece of advice I find myself giving a lot because I think it's much more impactful as a hiring manager to see um, projects where someone's actually gone out and solved a real world project where things aren't pretty than it is to see kind of a project that was solved as part of a, um, a boot camp or, or an online course. Gotcha. And, and similarly, when people go out there and find something of interest to them, like at uh, Data Science Go, we had Nadie Bremer presenting how she, uh, like one of the projects she's done is uh, she took um, the Lord of the Rings books or, or movie script mm. and then just analyzed in which... Uh, like in which movie who got to speak and how many words they said and build a visualization around that and like it's nobody like it's not gonna change an industry it's not it's really like it's not a business problem but like somebody who has that passion about a certain topic and then they apply data science to it, it already shows that not only can they wield the tools and and make you know, those insights happen but also they're they're so such believers in data science they apply it to things that they just consider their hobby right yeah, I think it's just important to see that someone can not just, you know, write the commands to build a, um, a regression model, but that they can actually think creatively about the ways to apply those in the real world. That's really what doing those projects is all about. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, I first want to say I've got a huge data science um, crush on Natty. thinks she's amazing and the, the work that <laughs> she, she does in data visualization is just unbelievable. Um, her, hers, like many other examples, is, is, is you know people who are passionate about the field and the, and, and the domain of data science, and um, and are able to kind of translate that passion into something which you know maybe doesn't change the world, but actually really you know shows that that these this techniques that we have this this field that we work in um, can give really powerful answers to sometimes pretty difficult questions. Yeah, gotcha. by the way, did you get to catch up with her? Because I remember you mentioned. No, you. I didn't. Oh, that's my I didn't. bad. Sorry, man. I should have introduced you guys. Uh, I'll 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 make sure to make the intro somehow else. Yeah. That's that's really cool. It's it's good to catch up with like you know people who inspire you, right? Like it's in meet them in person or even over email. Surely, yeah. Um, okay, so that's that's really cool. Thanks for for the tips on mentoring. Um, and there's so many other topics that I want to cover from like like you know choice paralysis. Uh, but before we get to the end of podcast of the podcast, I guess one thing I would like uh, to get your opinion on or thoughts is something that uh, you mentioned that you're. I'm quite interested in is data science and the decision-making process. Could you tell us a bit about that? Like, what are your thoughts on how um, how data science in impacts the whole decision-making process within a business? Yeah, I think you know this is so interesting because um, a lot of data scientists, when they're 
uh, first brought to a company uh, kind of make the mistake of thinking that you know the the whole data science process is really focused around the data right so mm -hmm. i've got to get to know the data i've got to build models and that's kind of like the output of my of my work and i think that the disillusionment then comes when you see that the output of those models is not then used by the business or ends up being kind of like either ignored or discarded and so for me what i always talk to my team about and, and really anyone i mentor is this idea that you know you need to think less about the data and the model but more about the decision that needs to be made mm -hmm. and so there's actually some teams um, in some companies that are really starting to reframe data science into decision science. Mm. And um, one of the people here who, who's really, I think, leading um, the, um, the pack in terms of just best practice and, and what does good really look like is Cassie Co uh, Kosrikoff, who's at Google. Mm -hmm. um, she's their chief decision scientist. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I watched her te uh, talk. I don't remember. It was a, I think it was a TED amazing. talk. Amazing. Yeah. So good. Yeah. She's done a TED talk and she's got some fantastic articles and um, podcasts that she's done. Mm -hmm. Um, and what she says um, about this whole decision science thing is that, you know, the um, the problem is that when you see data, you can't help but be influenced by it. So you need to think at the beginning of a project with your business stakeholders of asking them, you know, what would your default decision be? Mm -hmm. If you didn't have the results of this analysis, what would you do? You know, what would be the targets for, um, you know, either accuracy that you need to set or... Um, uh, or model uh, predictive performance or outputs before you can make a decision one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And so by doing that, what you do is you set kind of like a framework by which as a data scientist, when you do your analysis, you then know what, what kind of success looks like, mm -hmm. right? And so that you can then kind of say, when I'm building this um, uh, model or doing this analysis, you know, what am I working towards? And then you've got those kind of fixed set of um, goalposts as opposed to having something where um, I think a lot of people in data science will have seen this this idea of like, okay, build the model and I'll tell you what the decision is, yes or no, once I see the results. And it's like very, very hard mm -hmm. um, as a data scientist then because how, like, how do you know if the, uh, if the results, the outputs of what you're doing is ever really gonna drive any kind of decision in the business? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and like adding on to that, I would say also, a lot of data scientists don't um, consider this whole process of integration of their findings of their models into the business like data science projects are like used to be a more kind of one-off all right let's find the insights you know what, what's going on let's do this thing and okay let's inform a decision but yeah more and more they're becoming um ongoing things so where you have you deliver a model but then it has to be deployed into the business and it has to be developed and has to be integrated and then has to be maintained and so on and that's that's a whole new parts so like supporting these ongoing decisions constantly and i'm i'm sure like with you mentioned this with your model the the first case study that you uh shared that you have to retrain it with time right otherwise you know new stores come come on mm -hmm. uh come into the world new bars and and also the model might deteriorate over time so that's another thing that people need to keep in mind as well yeah, definitely. I think that the difficult, the difficult thing is, is really making sure you're clear on, on what kind of decision it needs to be made, right? Mm -hmm. Is this a decision that is kind of like a, it's a one-off decision and we just need to know um, the, the answer and that could be a prediction, like a predictive decision, or it could be an inference, right? I actually need to look at the coefficients in this model to understand the strength of some effect. Um, and that's one type of analysis. You know, another type of analysis is going to be more like what you said, where actually I need to make this decision many, many times um, in an automated way 
ongoing and that will probably require a different kind of um, approach potentially a different kind of model um, and certainly that model management and maintenance um, once the model is deployed for the first time to make sure that that decision that is being made by the model continues to be the best decision that can be made mm-hmm. and, and those are things that you want to those are things that you want to know before you start the project and not yeah. not find out at the end yeah true true and all, all of that ties into something else that you're quite passionate about is asking good data questions well right. how do people ask better data questions because that's that's such a common issue that like i've seen hundreds of times where people you know just hand you the data like find me some insights or you know like ask you yeah. a question and then then halfway through the project they realize they're asking the wrong question how do you what what advice would you give to business leaders and data scientists to agree on the questions at the start like for, for the first party to ask better questions and for the data scientists to guide the business leaders into asking the good data questions. What, what are your tips there? Right, yeah, I think there's, um, there's a few things. Like you said, I'm really passionate about asking good questions. I think it's kind of the, the trick up the sleeve of a data scientist, is, as you said, to themselves ask good questions and to coach the business into asking good questions. And I think there's a few things you can do to really make sure that you're doing your best to, to achieve that. One of those things is um, kind of my secret weapon, which is to ask who is going to do what with the answer to this, oh, right? that's so, good. That's so good. Right? Because yeah. it really forces whoever that business stakeholder is to kind of say like, okay, who is the stakeholder that's going to be making the decision? What are they going to do with the answer to it? Mm. Because too often what you find is that the question that you're framing up is actually being framed by someone who isn't going to be using the answer, right? <laughs> yeah. So if you're building a model that's going to go to, you know, um, salespeople that are out in the field selling cases of Red Bull and that question is being posed by you know, the head of sales, mm-hmm. well, the likelihood is that he may have misinterpreted the needs of those people right, and the needs of, of their answer. So you want to find people that are out representative of the answers, the, the, the people that are going to consume the answers to that to be in that project with you. Mm-hmm. So I think the first part of good question is just figuring out who is going to do, do what with the answer or the output. Mm-hmm. The second thing, which I think is, I kind of stole it, um, and I'm sure you've heard of smart targets, right? Mm. Oh, yeah, 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 targets. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Yeah. I, I think you can translate that to smart questions, right? So mm. you can have, um, you can think about the questions that you're asking in your frame of your data science project um, in, in this kind of smart framework. So are they specific, right? Do they relate to something that, you know, you can really put your finger on or are they kind of more general? Mm-hmm. Of course, it's data science, right? So they need to be measurable. M is for measurable. If you can't measure the the um, the thing that you're trying to ask a question about, you know, really difficult to do any data science on it. <laughs> Everything needs to be actionable. Everything needs to be actionable. That's why we're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, by and large, we're mostly applied um, data scientists, not research people. So we're looking for something where if we get the answer, we can actually do something with it. You want to have something that's realistic. And mm-hmm. realistic here can take a number of different dimensions. But realistic is, for me, means... You know, can we actually make this decision? If we actually, you know, get this answer, can we actually make the decision? Do we have the, you know, the organizational mandate? Do we have the sponsorship? Do we have the ability um, with our consumers to make this kind of decision if, if we get this answer? Uh, and then T, you want to have some kind of time frame, right? So, you know, when do we need this decision by and what time frame are we doing this analysis on um, to make sure that we're clear that, you know, is this a previous 30 days analysis or is this a previous five years analysis that's really important to know before you actually start doing the work Mm. love it i love your adaptation of the smart 
targets to data science and i never thought of it yeah. that way yeah smart targets smart smart questions <laughs> smart targets smart questions awesome well josh we'll leave it at that thank you so much for all the wisdom and the insights before i let you go uh where are the best places for our listeners to get in touch or follow your career so that they can learn more things from you yeah i um like i said i'm not great with um uh, public promotion. So there's no blog I have, unfortunately, but I would be more than happy for anyone who's interested in getting in touch to please reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, send me a message, um, whether you just want to chat, whether you want to uh, meet up and go for coffee, or you're looking for a job, just get in touch. And um, I'll be more than happy to have a conversation with anyone that's interested. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks, Josh. And one final question for you. Um, is there a book that you can recommend to our listeners that has perhaps changed your career or life that uh, you think would be useful for them to read as well? There have been loads of books. One of my, um, one of my real favorites was, uh, thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman. Mm -hmm. So that is, um, a book all about how humans make decisions and some of the, um, fallacies that we maybe make, um, or that we don't realize we're making as we make decisions. So, I would really, really encourage um, data scientists to read it because it um, opens up the world of understanding about how people make decisions and potentially some of the incorrect things that people do when they do make those decisions. And, you know, as we talked about, decision making is one of the most critical things for, for a data scientist to be able to understand and influence. Gotcha. Okay, there we go. So it's Thinking Fast and Slow by Dale Kahneman. Once again, Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman. Thanks so much, Josh, for coming on the show being amazing really enjoyed our chat uh, and i'm sure lots of people will get very valuable insights thank you carol so there you have it ladies and gentlemen that was josh monk director of data science at red bull i hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as i did it was so cool of josh to share two case studies of how data science is applied at red bull and hopefully you were able to extract some examples of industry applications of data science from that and uh, and another important topic that we covered off in this podcast was data science leadership, an extremely important area to focus on for businesses as we go more and more into the world where data science matures and it becomes a function, a separate function within business. On that note, make sure to connect with Josh. You can get the URL to his LinkedIn and all of the show notes at www.superdatascience.com slash 233. That's superdatascience.com slash 233. And there you'll also find the transcript for this episode, any materials we mentioned as well. And uh, if you know anybody who's in data science leadership, who's a leader in the space of data science, a manager, a business owner, a director in the space of data science and is interested or might benefit from knowing and learning more about data science leadership, then send them this episode, forward this episode and help them get these insights and maybe after this podcast, connect with Josh and brainstorm some ideas about data science leadership. On that note, thanks so much for being here today. I look forward to seeing you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing.